Now, you might remember from last week that the theme of 1 Peter is living in exile. Uh, Peter is writing to people that have been scattered all over the place. They're far away from from their homes. Uh, They've most likely had to start all over again. And they appear to be discouraged and and, uh, discomforted by their circumstances and probably the, the persecution and the trials that they're facing. And so one of Peter's main goals in this letter is to encourage these believers by pointing them to a spiritual reality and a future reality that, that should uh, shape their outlook and their attitudes and their, beha- their behavior here and now as they are living as exiles in this world. And as Josh said last week, we are not at home in this world either. We are also living as exiles. And so let's allow Peter to encourage us also to shape our attitudes, our outlook, and our behavior. And so Peter begins by doing just that, starting with our passage here today, which is verses three through five in chapter one. But before he gets to the heart of what he wants to communicate to these Christians, this passage, this passage starts out with what might seem to us uh, to be just like a random interjection of praise. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, isn't it interesting how most of the New Testament letters follow a very similar pattern? And, of course, we know that Paul is the most well-known for this. You know how it goes. It's the name of the author, followed by a description of who he is, who the letter is to, then there's some sort of nice greeting, and then there's usually some sort of praise to God, like what we see here in verse 3. Now, we might be tempted to think of this as if it's nothing more than just a convenient way of transitioning from the introduction into the main content of the letter. You know, I can can just imagine Peter sitting down to write this, and he's like, okay, now how how should I start this? Uh, He didn't have a pen. Imagine it's like a feather quill or something, I don't know. He's like, okay, how should I start? Let's see, what would Paul say? Okay, I got it. Peter. Yeah, that's good. I like that. (laughs) But they might know more than one Peter. So, uh, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, that should do it. So, uh, to all the elect exiles in all these far-off places, okay, now I need a nice greeting. Uh, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right, introduction's done. Now, I just need a little transition before I get into what I really want to say. Let's see. Uh, I know. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. Beat that, Paul. <laughs> but then he goes and reads Ephesians, Paul's letter to the, to the Ephesians, verse 3, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, what? Come on, man. <laughs> But I kid you not, it is word for word exactly the same thing as what Paul says in Ephesians. In fact, I'd encourage you to go and and read both Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 and compare them with this passage in 1 Peter. I think you'll be blown away like I was with the similarities between them. I, I mean, it's as if the same Holy Spirit inspired all of it, right? 
Now, I can guarantee you that that is not how Peter wrote this. This is not just some random transition between thoughts. This was incredibly intentional. Now, you have to assume that these biblical authors spent incredible amounts of time uh, pondering on the, on the word, meditating on the word, and receiving inspiration from the Holy Spirit before they ever even started writing these letters. So Peter is most likely overwhelmed with praise to God and excitement over what he's about to share with these believers. It's like he's saying, guys, because of all of the awesome truths that I'm about to write to you of what God has done for you through Christ, I just can't contain my praise to God. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, let me take the next couple of chapters and tell you why that is. And he starts with this. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Jesus once told a very smart and famous uh, Hebrew teacher of the law that you must be born again if you want to see God's kingdom. Now, this confused Nicodemus, just like it still confuses people to this day. And I, I think it's confusing to us because it just seems so passive, doesn't it? Well, tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. Well, just be born again. Well, how do I do that? Nicodemus said, can I, can I enter my mother's womb a second time and be born again? And Jesus' response is, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Huh? <laughs> that, that barely even makes sense to us. But what does make sense to us, what we can understand, is that the first time we came into this world, we did not choose where we would be born. We didn't choose which family we would be born into. We didn't choose our culture or our race nor the time period in history that we would want to be born into. And in the same way, it is God himself who has caused us to be born again. We didn't choose the time, the place, or the manner in which it would happen, but when God said it was time for me to be born again, I was given a new heart. He has caused us to be born again. Ezekiel describes it like a heart transplant. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, it was God the Father who decided the day you would be born into this world, and it is God the Father who decides the day you will be born again through Christ into his family. And he did this not because he felt obligated, not because he looked into the future and saw something good in you. He did it simply because of his great mercy towards you. 
Now, we have not only been born again and given new life by this new birth, but we have also been born into certain things, right? We understand this. Just like we are born physically into a family, we're born into a culture, into a time in history, we are also spiritually born into two specific things that Peter mentions here. Number one, a living hope, and number two, an inheritance. So let's unpack this. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We know what hope is, right? We use that word often, but what is a living hope? We don't talk that way, do we? Yeah, the next time your friend says, I really hope the Seahawks win this Sunday. I dare you to just ask him, but is that a living hope? (laughs) Weirdo. (laughs) We use the word hope a lot, but there's a danger in that because we might become so familiar with this word that uh, we can assume that we know what it means. But our way of using the word hope is quite different from what the Bible means when it speaks of hope. So perhaps it would be uh, helpful if we talked about the different types of hope. Uh, So there's the Seahawks game type of hope where you have no idea what the outcome is, you don't know what will happen, but you also have no influence or control over that outcome either. So this type of hope is more similar to a wish. You know, like I wish the Seahawks would win this Sunday. I hope they will win. Then there's the type of hope where you might have some idea of the outcome and you do have some influence over that outcome, but you still don't know for sure what will happen. It's like, I'm really doing my best to raise my kids well and I hope they turn out all right. This one isn't completely out of your control and you can influence the outcome to some degree, but you also don't completely determine that that outcome either there's always a chance that it might not turn out the way you want. So this hope is is more optimistic, but it is still speculative. But then there's the Bible type of hope. When the biblical uh, authors speak of hope, they're talking about a confident expectation. It means to trust and wait for something that will happen. This is when the outcome has already been determined but you just don't see it yet. So it's not up to you to try to control the outcome, but simply eagerly wait for it, to anticipate it. You know, our English word really doesn't capture that idea well, so let me, let me illustrate this for you. Uh, if you are playing the lottery, you, you have zero control over that outcome, right? All you can do is purchase a ticket and hope for the best, right? But that's like the, the Seahawks type of hope, wishful thinking. I wish I would win the lottery. However, however, if you are now uh, watching the lottery results show on TV, right? They're announcing the numbers. And I, I don't even know, is that still the way that they do it? That's how they did it back when I was a kid. They had it, you know, it was all on TV. It's probably on the internet now, I don't know. But let's say you're watching that show and there's, they start calling out the numbers. And you're looking at your ticket and they call number after number, after number, and every single number matches your ticket. They get to the end, they've called all the numbers, it matches your ticket perfectly. 
Well, now the outcome is sure. You've just won the lottery. You're being told that you're going to receive millions of dollars, yet you don't have it yet. You do not have that money in your hand. It's not in your bank account. And it might seem like this is just too good to be true. You might keep pinching yourself, hoping that this isn't just a dream. But in reality, you need to just quit doubting and believe that it is actually happening. And this comes close to the biblical idea of hope. God has already guaranteed the outcome. He has given us the winning numbers, and so we can be confident and sure while we wait and hope for it to happen. And this is why Peter says that the hope that we have is a living hope. It is a hope that is alive because it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is alive, death is defeated, salvation is secured, so therefore our hope can be described as living. Why? Because our hope is both in Christ and our hope is Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope. And he is alive right now. And so therefore we have a living hope. Now, if this outcome is, it's already been guaranteed, then what is that outcome exactly? Well, a huge part of it is that we will receive an inheritance, as Peter says. He says that is the second thing that we've been born into. We've been born, we've been, uh, born again to a living hope and also to an inheritance. Now, this idea of inheritance is, is very significant and what it meant to the original people reading this letter would have been a little different than what it means to us today. I mean, we understand what an inheritance is, right? Now, kids, if you don't know what an inheritance is, go home today and ask your parents uh, what that is, but more importantly, ask them how much it is. <laughs> I'm kidding, don't do that. Now, we, we know that an inheritance is all of the money and the possessions they get passed down to children after the parents die, right? But <clears throat> let's be honest. We really don't depend on an inheritance as much as they did back in the ancient world. We have corporate jobs, retirement plans, social security, disposable income. Why do we call it that, by the way? Is there anybody who's like, I've just got too much income, I'd, I'd like to dispose of it. But even if we're not financially well off, we still have government assistance to help us out. So an inheritance might be a really nice bonus later on in life, but for the ancient people, it was huge. They really counted on it. And it's also linked to a huge theme that we see throughout scripture, which is this idea of the firstborn. The firstborn son was, was very important in the ancient Jewish culture which is the, the cultural setting of the Old Testament. And a double portion of the inheritance was passed down to that firstborn son along with all of the responsibilities of leading the family. Now I wanna talk a little bit later about what our inheritance in Christ actually is, but first let's take a look at the adjectives that Peter uses to describe this inheritance. First he says that our inheritance is imperishable. 
Now, we talk about perishable foods and non-perishable foods. Perishable foods are, of course, the ones that will go bad after just a short time. They perish. Non-perishable foods are things like canned foods that uh, can seemingly last forever. You store them in the pantry. But uh, if you're a child of the 80s, like I was, uh, then you might have believed the urban legends that were very common at that time that claimed that the infamous Twinkie (laughs) was the ultimate non-perishable food. There are legendary stories that have been told of this immortal Twinkie that will last for hundreds of years and maybe even more and not go bad. Now, Tiffany uh, heard that I was going to be speaking about Twinkies, and so she showed up the other day from the store with this. She bought me some Twinkies, I guess so I could show you guys, uh, because we realized there's probably a lot of kids today that don't even know what a Twinkie is. Uh, I mean, we didn't have as many options back then as we do now. But uh, this is, this is the, the beautiful, delicious Twinkie. It's like a, a fluffy, cream-filled pillow full of sugar. Uh, now, she got these for me, and I'm like, what am I going to do with these? I don't want to eat these. Uh, so I had a brilliant idea. I went and bought more of them uh, so that I could give them to all your kids. <laughs> You're welcome. <clears throat> uh, so, kids... Pay attention. Uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to get half a Twinkie. Now, why only half a Twinkie? Because uh, 32 grams of sugar, that's why. Uh, So there's a whole platter full of half Twinkies out in the kitchen, and I want you to take notes, okay? So grab a pen and a paper, and if you can show me a paper after the service uh, with the three words that that Peter uses to describe our inheritance, the three adjectives, and tell me something else that, that you learned, okay, during the sermon, just anything, then I will give you half a Twinkie, okay? And then I'll send you off to your parents. <laughs> you know, there's a saying that goes, when the world comes to an end, all that will be left are cockroaches and Twinkies. <laughs> uh, that's probably so the cockroaches have something to eat. However, I was shocked recently to learn that this supposed non-perishable food is actually quite perishable. In fact, the manufacturer claims a shelf life of only 45 days. Now, in case you need any proof of the Twinkie's mortality, you can read the story of Colin Purrington, who purchased multiple boxes of Twinkies back in 2012 because it was rumored at that time that they were going to discontinue them. And like me, he thought that they would last forever. He had them in storage for eight years until the middle of the COVID lockdowns when he got so bored that one day he decided to open one up and eat it. It looked fine. It looked just like it did on the day that he bought it. But when he put it in his mouth, he nearly threw up. He later commented that it tasted like an old sock. I don't want to know how he's familiar with the flavor of old socks. (laughs) But the fact is that all things perish, even the mighty Twinkie. There is absolutely nothing in this world that lasts forever. All things will wear out and die, or rust, or mold, or erode, or extinguish. Our bodies age and wear out. 
We die and then we rot and we decay. We perish. This is the reality that we live with. This is the consequence of our own sin and rebellion against God. God warned our first parents in the garden that in the day that you eat of it, you will die. You walk away from me, the source of life, and you will find death. And because of their rebellion and our rebellion, God cursed the ground. So from that moment until today, we experience death and decay, but God's good creation is now also perishable because of the effects of sin. But listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So this death and decay and disorder and corruption that we experience today is because of our sin, but it is only temporary. Thank God. One day, even creation itself will be set free and no longer experience decay and death along with us. So not only is our inheritance imperishable, but Peter says it is also undefiled. To defile something in the biblical sense is to make it impure or unclean. We don't have time to study that whole theme, but we see all throughout the Old Testament God commanding his people to set apart certain people or even objects as ceremonially clean. This was meant to point us to a future spiritual reality that those who are in Christ are cleansed and washed clean from their sin that once defiled them. As Isaiah says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. And this is also true of our inheritance. It is pure and good and clean and can never be defiled by anything impure or evil. Uh, when, you were, when you were younger, at a restaurant, did you ever unscrew the lid of the salt shaker and then you just leave it sitting gently on top? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I, I've never done that. <laughs> uh, but you know what happens, right, to the next person who sits down at the table and goes to put a little salt on their food? They get a big surprise. Their meal is now tainted. It's been defiled. So much salt has been added to their food that it's no longer even edible. Now, kids, do not try this at home, okay? And definitely don't do it at a restaurant. Now, as much as Satan would love to metaphorically dump a ton of salt onto our inheritance, to taint it and mess it up in some way, God assures us that our inheritance is and will remain forever undefiled, far out of reach from the contamination of sin or evil. The third adjective that Peter uses to describe our inheritance is unfading. I can remember as a kid uh, getting a new Lego set. It was one of those spaceship sets that we had back then. You know the kind that are just like two colors, blue and gray. And they had the little blue space guy with the little space helmet. 
That was about the coolest thing that we had back then. I played with that spaceship so much. I, I took it apart and rebuilt it in different ways. But as I got older, I thought that I would one day pass it down to my kids. I put it away in storage and forgot about it. But like 20 years went by. And then my oldest son started getting into Legos. And so I got it back out again out of storage. And I, I, you know, I thought this thing's going to last forever, right? Legos last forever. They're always compatible with the new sets. They don't break. They don't wear out in any way. Or so I thought. Uh, we, we got it out. We started looking at it. And, and the pieces that used to be dark blue, they're now like this ugly, spotted, light blue color. And the ones that were dark gray had, had faded. And they, they looked uh, light gray with this like yellow stain all over them. It was weird. And then we started trying to build with them, and we noticed that they were, they were brittle. They were breaking apart into little pieces. You know, we might have hope that certain things in life will last forever, or at least last for our lifetime, but the reality is, is that everything around us grows older. Everything we see and experience fades away. The brand new shiny toys that used to impress us are now faded or broken. Junkyards are filled with cars that at one time were shiny and new and caught someone's attention and caused them to pay way too much money for them. But this inheritance is truly unfading. And guys, I want you to understand, Peter is not just using slick marketing language here. He's not exaggerating like a used car salesman. You know, come on down and get your limited edition inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, guaranteed to last for an eternity. Terms and conditions apply. No way. No way. Peter is not acting here as God's hype man. He's not just trying to get us all hyped up and excited about what's to come. Have you ever been to some kind of event where they just promoted the heck out of it and they hyped it up? And then you get there and you see it, you experience it, and it's not like it was terrible. I mean, it was good, but it just couldn't live up to all that hype. This, I mean, that's American culture, right? <laughs> Everything just gets hyped up to the max, and then we're always left a little disappointed. But that is not what is going on here, my friends. Peter is not setting our expectations too high. If anything, my brothers and sisters, our expectations are far too low. I, I'm sure you do the same with your kids that I do with mine. Try to manage expectations so they don't get their hopes up. You know, like, okay, I know your birthday is coming. And I know that you want for your birthday a real, actual, functioning lightsaber. <laughs> but please don't get your hopes up. I mean, you know those don't really exist, right? I mean, even the replica ones are like 400 bucks. It's not going to happen. Please don't get your hopes up. If you're lucky, you'll get the $15 knockoff from Walmart. <laughs> but you know what, Peter here, it's like he is saying, hey guys, go ahead and get your hopes up. No, no, higher. Go ahead and get your hopes up really high. Because whatever expectation you set, God is just going to exceed that and blow your minds. 
So go ahead and get your hopes up. No, 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 higher. No, no, higher. No, that, that's still not high enough. Because Peter is saying that in a very real and concrete sense that this expectation-smashing inheritance can never be destroyed. It cannot be tainted in any way by evil, and it cannot ever wear out or lose its value. It will still be just as good in year number 10,000 as it was on day one. And why is that? Because this inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. If this inheritance is truly kept in heaven for us, then it is God himself who is doing the keeping. He is reserving it for you. That is safer than the Federal Reserve. It's safer than the stock market. It's more secure than your 401k. And you can be absolutely sure of it that this inheritance will be waiting for you to enjoy for all eternity in God's kingdom. But sadly, what we see all throughout Scripture is people like Jacob and people like us trying to grab and take for himself that position of the firstborn along with that double portion of the inheritance. And that pattern just gets repeated over and over and over again by sinful people who cannot trust that God the Father will provide enough. And so they feel like they have to steal or manipulate to get what isn't theirs, or they simply don't want to wait for what God has already promised. So they try to make it happen right now instead of waiting on God. And that was the same temptation that Jesus faced and defeated in the wilderness when Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and told him he could have it all right now if he would just bow and worship him. It was the temptation of taking a shortcut to what God has already promised, grabbing and taking it rather than waiting on God. You know, a lack of faith always leads to impatience. Faith, however, leads to a patient but eager expectation, which we call hope. Now, as we will see later on in 1 Peter, these exiled believers, they were being tempted to compromise their faith, to live like the world around them, to find their ultimate fulfillment in the comforts and pleasures and riches of this world. They were tempted, just as we are today, to reach out and take for ourselves a counterfeit inheritance that is perishable, that is defiled, and that is fading. We are like anxious little kids who just can't trust that our Father is actually good. We cannot trust that our Father will do what He has promised. You know, some of us may have had earthly fathers who didn't look out for you. They, they lived their lives for themselves and for their own pleasure. They didn't think twice about their future and they certainly didn't think about yours. You know, it's sad. We, we hear people joke about living it up and spending their kids' inheritance, leaving them nothing. But I can assure you that as God's children, we have nothing to worry about. We have a father who keeps his promises 
If he says that he will keep that inheritance for you in heaven, then you can take that to the bank. Just make sure it isn't Silicon Valley Bank. (laughs) But not only will God keep his promise, verse 5 says he will also keep us until that day when we receive our inheritance. Look at verse 5. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, the same God who gave us new birth, who gave us reason to hope because of the resurrection of Jesus, and who promised us an inheritance, he has also promised to guard us until the end when our salvation will be complete. And notice here that it is not our faith that is keeping us and guarding us. It does not say, by our faith, we are being guarded through God's power. It's the other way around. You notice that? It is by God's power that we are being guarded through our faith. Is it not comforting to know that it is God who is guarding and keeping your salvation rather than you and your performance or your faith? Isn't it also interesting that that Peter here speaks of God revealing our salvation in the end? It isn't so much that, that our salvation is being hidden from us right now, but it's that in the end, we will see God's entire plan and work of redemption from beginning to end. There will be this great revealing of how God did it all, saving not only individuals like you and me, but also saving a people for himself from every tribe and nation and language. To put it simply, it will finally all make sense. Our salvation will be complete and finished, and we will finally and fully understand why God allowed this or that in our lives. We will understand the purpose for all the trials. We will see how God orchestrated things in our lives that we weren't even aware of, all for the purpose of saving and redeeming and sanctifying us forming us into image bearers of Jesus and preparing us to live in his kingdom forever. And this gives us reason to hope, to have a living hope in spite of whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in right now in this very temporary place and time. Now with the time that we have left, I want to back up just a little bit and I want to dig a little deeper into this inheritance that we've been promised. We've heard Peter describe it by saying that it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, but those are just descriptions, right? So what, what is it exactly that we are going to inherit? Well, the New Testament writers speak of our inheritance fairly often, uh, but none of them seem to think it's necessary to explain in detail what this inheritance actually consists of. And you know, if we're going to hold on to hope that one day we will receive an inheritance from God, shouldn't it be important that that we know what we're waiting for? I mean, wouldn't it just stink to wait your whole life to hold out this hope and to receive this inheritance only to discover that it's like the time you thought you were getting a new bike for Christmas and all you got was that lousy package of underwear? (laughs) 
Thanks a lot. Well, here's what we do know about our inheritance. Luke calls our inheritance eternal life. Mark also calls it eternal life and the kingdom of God. Paul calls it the kingdom of God. The author of Hebrews calls it salvation. And Peter calls it later on in this letter, the grace of life. Now they still don't go on into any detail at all, but just from these limited descriptions, I think it would be safe if we were to define our inheritance as at the very least, living forever in God's kingdom where our salvation will be complete. But then if you go and you read descriptions of of what God's kingdom will be like in places like Isaiah, the last chapters of Revelation and elsewhere, you start to get a little bit more clarity on what 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 it'll actually be like to be living in God's kingdom forever. And I came up with just a very incomplete list based on things that we do know for sure. And and man, I love to speculate about what it's going to be like in God's kingdom in eternity. Uh, But these are just things that we do know for sure from Scripture. First of all, perfect union with God. Not in a merely spiritual sense, but in a very real and physical sense. Revelation says, we will see his face. We will have eternal life and an incorruptible body that no longer decays. We will be, just like our inheritance, imperishable. We will experience freedom from pain, sorrow, suffering, sickness. Complete freedom from sin. Citizenship in the new heavens and new earth. We will live in a world and a society where peace, love, and joy reign forever and where perfect justice governs the land under God's perfect rule. We will be fully known, fully accepted, and fully loved That is what it means to be fulfilled. We will be fully fulfilled. We will have unhindered worship of God. No longer held back by uh, your headache at church or being tired or the kids screaming on the way to church. We will worship God freely. You know, the end of uh, Revelation, oh, sorry, I'm skipping one. We will reign with Christ sharing in his authority and his rule over all creation. And then at the end of Revelation, uh, we see that John says there will be no more need of the sun or the moon because God himself will be the never-ending light. Guys, you know what that means? No more overcast, gloomy days. (laughs) Northwesterners rejoice. (laughs) We might actually get a tan. We'll probably burn and peel for the first thousand years, but it'll happen eventually. And last but not least, this is my, one of my favorite ones, we will feast with Jesus. We will have, we will take communion with Jesus. We will actually commune with him. We will sit and eat and drink with Jesus. And when we take communion in just a little while, I want you to imagine this scene that Isaiah describes when talking about God's future kingdom. Listen to what he says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, 
a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. God is inviting you to a feast, and he is the chef. I don't know exactly what we're going to eat there apart from the, the meat and the wine that's mentioned here, but I do know that it's going to be the best food you've ever had. Even the pickiest of eaters are going to be fully satisfied. But now, contrast that amazing feast with Jesus. Contrast that with this tiny little morsel of bread and this little thimbleful of juice or wine. This weird little ritual that Jesus gave us to continue celebrating, to proclaim his death until he comes back. That contrast is supposed to be apparent to us. Jesus said he won't drink the fruit of the vine again until he drinks it with us in his Father's kingdom. That's meant to draw our attention to that day when we will feast with Jesus. But it can also serve as an image reminding us that every good thing, every blessing from God that we get to experience in this life right now, it's like that little morsel of bread and that little thimbleful of wine. It's just a smidgen of God's goodness, just a little taste compared to what's to come. But because God is good and he is gracious, we do still get to enjoy and experience that little taste of our inheritance right now. You know, similarly to, to how we say that God's kingdom is both already and also not yet, the same could also be said of our inheritance. Right here and now, we can experience, although in a limited way, freedom from sin, healing from sickness and disease, spiritual union and fellowship with God, justice and peace in society whenever groups of people love God and love one another as he commands. We find fulfillment and satisfaction in Christ, even though it can be inconsistent at times. And we do occasionally get a sunny day, once every six months or so. But it's, it's so incomplete, isn't it? We're always left wanting more. It's so temporary and fleeting. Those clouds always come back. We only get a small taste of our inheritance today. But we cling to hope, having a confident expectation that we will one day fully experience this great inheritance that right now we can only taste in part. The reality is that this life during our time of exile is difficult. We are not at home in this present world. Yet we can have a living hope in spite of our circumstances. And so, to the husband or the wife who wonders if they'll ever be on the same page with their spouse again, to the one who wonders if they will even ever have a spouse, to the parents who long for their children to turn to Christ, to the one who lives in constant pain and physical limitations, to the overworked and underpaid to the oppressed and the poor, to the depressed and the anxious, to the one who is tempted to put his hope in riches 
to the one who gets mocked at work for being a follower of Jesus, to the one who's frustrated and always disappointed in our politicians, who promise real hope but can never deliver, to the the one who thinks he will never overcome that nagging sin or addiction that seems to always get the best of you and keep you enslaved, to you, Christian, living in exile, find your hope in Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus. Because God, simply because he chose to show you mercy, has given you a new heart and a new life in Christ. He has given you a reason to hope in this life. Why? Because Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. He is risen, just as we will also be raised to receive and share in his inheritance that is everlasting, perfect and pure, and preserved by God for us. And he is also keeping and guarding us until that day when our faith is made sight, when we see our salvation realized, and when we see our God face to face. That ought to cause us to shout along with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you have heard all of this, and you are not completely confident that you will receive this inheritance along with us because you don't have a good standing with the Father who gives it, then I encourage you, I invite you to come today to Jesus. Join the family. Share in this inheritance with us. But you have to realize you've done nothing to earn that inheritance You've done nothing to earn favor with the Father. In fact, you have disappointed him in just about every way imaginable through your disobedience to his commands and his desires for you. The truth is that we have all been the black sheep of the family. Whether we look like the raging rebel or the righteous religious person, but Jesus was the perfect firstborn son of the Father who pleased him in every way. He did earn the favor of the Father. He is the true firstborn son who deserves every good gift that the Father can give. And yet, rather than grab it and snatch it up and greedily keep it all for himself, he chooses to share it freely with us, undeserving sinners, making us co-heirs along with him. So you can stop looking for satisfaction and joy and peace everywhere else. You can stop running to your sin when things look hopeless. You can stop trying to grab and snatch and take all you can get and hoard it all for yourself. You can stop chasing that counterfeit inheritance. Because if you simply put your faith in Jesus, there is an abundant inheritance that is yours and there is plenty to go around. You can find freedom from your sin through Jesus' death on the cross. And there is a living hope for the future because of his resurrection from the dead. There's a song that I love that says, how great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, 
my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I am yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who sets me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our living hope. We have hope in no one else and in nothing else but you. So would you set our affections on you? When things look hopeless, help us to turn to you. Lord, we thank you for this great, immeasurable inheritance that you have promised us through Christ. So Lord, set our things on things above. Set our affections on things above. Lord, we look to you. We thank you for what you have promised. Help us not to doubt it, but to believe, to wait, to anxiously anticipate with hope that day when we will see you face to face. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.